Good morning, Asbury Seminary. It's a pleasure to be here. My name is Chuck Proudfit. Let me lift up a prayer to start us out this morning. Father, thank you so much that we can gather here at Asbury, that we can reflect on that scripture reading from the parable of the talents, that we can understand that you want us to move forward in our work world to take risk, to take resources that you bring to us and then to multiply them, not to bury them in the ground. Father, in your word, you place the parable of the talents next to the metaphor of the sheep and the goats because you remind us that you don't just bring us resources to multiply. You bring us resources for a reason. And whatever we've done with them that serves the least of these, it's serving you. So, Father, with that spirit, we lift up this conversation in this chapel this morning. With gratitude in Jesus' name, amen. Open us up. This is a photo of me and my sister growing up in Boulder, Colorado. So the front range of the Rocky Mountains, it was a great place to grow up in many ways. It was very scenic, but my upbringing was very secular. My parents, perhaps unlike many of you, they had walked away from the church growing up, and so I had a, an upbringing that had nothing to do uh, with spiritual underpinnings. It just was not part of my life. What was part of my life was going into God's creation, uh, going into the mountains, exploring and hanging out with friends and then as I got older getting into the things that teenage boys do like cars I was uh, in love with them at the time I remember vividly because I started what today we'd call an auto detailing business see my parents were English professors and English professors don't drive cool cars the cars that we drove were the ones in the bottom so we had a 1976 Honda Accord LX and we had a 1981 Subaru GL. And I remember that because I love cars. But I wanted to clean cool cars so I could drive them. Like the Jaguar XJS, the upper left-hand corner, and the Porsche 911 on the upper right-hand corner. And I was paid about $75 for, on average, about three hours of work. $25 an hour in the early 1980s to do car cleaning. And I got an early taste about what it looks like to be able to multiply a return, to be able to go out there and start a business of my own and to make quite a bit more money than my friends were making. And frankly, uh, that many of us in this society even make by the hour today. It gave me this early taste also of who I was. See, God gifted me entrepreneurially, but I didn't have a word for that. I simply knew that this was fun, this was something that was interesting to me, and I could harness it out there somewhere in the marketplace. When I graduated from high school, I had the opportunity to attend Harvard University. And I will tell you that Harvard was the most cosmopolitan place I've ever lived. There were people there from all over the world, and they represented all of the faith traditions of the world. Many of them became my friends, and many of them had found God at Harvard, or at least they felt that they had. And so over the course of my time there, I had plenty of time to hang out with them, to sit down with them, and in the words that I would use today as a believer, because I was not back then, they were sharing their faith testimonies with me. They were all describing to me how they had found God, 
how they had come to understand God's truth, and I was fascinated that their truths were contradictory, and truth does not contradict itself. How do you reconcile Islam, Judaism, Baha'i, and so many other religious traditions? I was interested in that, but that was on the back burner, because what was on the front burner was my emerging career. I was an undergraduate there studying uh, what is called organizational development. This is essentially psychology and business. It was the closest I could get to a business degree in a liberal arts program. And while I was there, I decided that it was time to start another company. And so I did. Now this was back in 1985. Apple Computer had just launched the Macintosh computer and the laser writer printer. This was the advent of desktop publishing. This was a disruptive technology in its time that completely changed the world of what today we would call offset printing. So with a fraction of the time for a fraction of the expense, we could create restaurant menus and price lists and dissertations and resumes and stuff like that. And we could turn around and format them and then laser print them. We had 12 employees. These were students from Harvard and Tufts. And back in those days, this is all pre-internet. Uh, for those in the audience who've never lived in a world where there isn't internet somewhere, uh, we would hand floppy disks to the students who would go to their dorm rooms and they would type up the material and then we would bring it into the office and produce it. And, and we had a thriving little business in Harvard Square, which was the commercial center right by the university. So when it came time to graduate, I had an opportunity to sell this business to Harvard. And I was there last month for my 30th anniversary reunion, which is a whole side story I don't have time to tell you about today with a lot of spiritual learning for me. But in any case, when I went back, I discovered that that business is still operating. They have 60 employees today. They do websites, search engine optimization, all kinds of stuff that I never could have imagined. But of course, all of this was disconnected from any kind of a spiritual underpinning. I was starting to live out the gifts that God had given me, but I didn't even know who the gift giver had been. All I knew was that I'd had at least a spiritual taste, just a little bit of a touch of what it's like for some people to have a faith life in their whole life. And I thought that was interesting. But what was more interesting was my emerging corporate career. What brought me to Cincinnati, Ohio, where I still live today, was a job at a multinational company called Procter & Gamble. Much to the horror of my parents, two English professors who had taken out a second mortgage on their house to send their son to Harvard, assuming that I would become an academic, I had instead only gone as far as an undergraduate degree. I was moving to the parochial Midwest and leaving the progressive Western United States, and I was going into greedy corporate America, and to make matters worse, I had landed or had been assigned to toilet paper at Procter & Gamble. <laughs> About a week into my job, my mom called me, who to this day is uh, very direct in the way that she communicates, and she said, Chucky, you are flushing your career down the toilet. <laughs> and about Six months into my job, I started to think that my mother may have been right, which is a hard thing for a young man to admit. See, in my first week of work, I was assigned to a SWAT team, which was short for sell white cloud toilet paper at $2 a four roll. 
And we spent six months doing nothing but researching how to raise the price on an over-engineered product that was softer and thicker than anyone wanted to pay for. At the end of six months, what we had concluded was that the thing we needed to do was to take what's called a sheet count reduction. So this project, which got me promoted in a matter of months because it was very successful, was to take 30 sheets off of each roll of toilet paper, wind the rolls a little more loosely so the diameter was the same as before the sheet count reduction, take a tiny increase in the thickness, the basis weight of the paper, and then my job was to market it as new and improved. New because it had 30 fewer sheets and improved because it was thicker. And I was less than inspired. In fact, I remember it like it was yesterday. I was working downtown at the corporate offices and I would walk home along a highway that led up to a hill that looks down over the skyline of Cincinnati. It's called Mount Adams. So I'm walking home along Columbia Parkway back up to my bachelor pad and I'm thinking to myself, I'm 22 years old at this point, I cannot believe I'm about to get promoted for short sheeting the consumer. By the way, since I know this is being recorded, for those who are in, in corporate America who work for Procter & Gamble, there is nothing illegal or unethical about doing this. This happens all the time. Some of you are going to eat lunch this afternoon and open up a bag of potato chips, which is going to look so full. And when you do, it's two-thirds air and all the chips are on the bottom. It's the same thing. It's just the way it is. But it wasn't the way I wanted my life to be. And I didn't know what to do about it. See, I had been living out a storyline that I caught growing up. It wasn't taught to me, it was caught. That as you're growing up, you go to school and you get good grades so you could get a good job, make lots of money, retire comfortably, and die with a lot of toys to pass on. And I was at the part where I had gone to a really good school and I got a really good job and I was making really good money, and I was really miserable, and I didn't know what to do about that. So I had a midlife crisis at 22. And I remember that night, I was sitting out on the deck of my bachelor pad, looking out over the Ohio River that's basically flowing down through Cincinnati. And unlike Colorado's clear creeks and streams, uh, this looked more like a mass of mud slowly moving downhill, and I looked at it and I thought, that is my career. I am going to be spending the next 20, 30, 40 years doing work like this, and I am going to be absolutely miserable, and I can't stand that idea, and I don't know what to replace it with. And it was that night that the Holy Spirit tapped on my heart. Now, I didn't know this at the time. The way I experienced it then was that I was having a conversation with me, myself, and I. But I remembered back just six months earlier, I'd been stomping around Harvard Yard at the university, dreaming about what it was gonna be like to graduate and go out into the real world and to climb the corporate ladder and to make my mark in the world, right? That's where I had come from. And now I'd face the reality of what work life looks like for so many people. In fact, the majority of people who go to work with jobs that they don't love or even hate. 
And so that still small voice said to me that night, you know, Chuck, you're going to be working for a long time. So why don't you explore the spiritual underpinnings of your life because it might have something to say about the kind of work that you should do. I remembered back to those friends of mine when I'd been in college and what faith had meant for their lives and I decided I was going to just see what that might look like for me. And so I began to research world religions and philosophies. I spent the next 10 years doing this. I went back to the original source material. I read the Quran, the Bhagavad Gita, the Dhammapada, the Torah, the New Testament. I went into philosophy. I was studying the Analects of Confucius, the Dialogues of Plato, and I came to Christ 10 years later in November of 1996 at age 31. 1997 was my first full year as a new believer, passionate to put God at the center of my life and to build everything around that. And at this point in my life, I'm spending most of my waking hours at work. Not only that, my concept of the church at work is largely informed by my reading of the New Testament, especially the book of Acts, where the apostles came from the marketplace, where the marketplace was a central staging area for ministry, and where God moved supernaturally. In the book of Acts, 39 of the 40 supernatural acts happened in the marketplace. Think about that. Then I start getting more and more active in what we call today the church, the local church. And I am stunned to discover that the vast majority of working Christians separate faith and work, going to church on Sunday and work on Monday. Only a remnant of us, about 5% statistically, about 5%, one out of every 20 working Christians, brings faith to work. Think about that for a second. Now, as a new believer, I didn't have a word for what today I would describe as a calling. All I knew was I had this nudge, this pressing feeling that would not go away, that I needed to do something with faith at work, first for myself and then for other people. I started at this point with a consulting firm that I had launched and I thought to myself, I am going to build a Christ-centered consultancy that glorifies God. That's how I'll get started. And that was trial and error, believe me. Because the minute I started expressing faith at work, the world started pushing back. Because there are two things that you're not supposed to talk about at work. What are they? Religion and politics. Right, you weren't taught that, were you? You caught that. We catch that in our society. And this is the work world that working Christians walk into. So I became increasingly convicted. You know, what would it look like to be gentle as a dove, but wise as a serpent? Because God doesn't just suggest in Scripture, he commands that we live out our faith at work. And so as I began to learn what it looks like to be faith active at work, especially through my particular work, which was consulting work, I also started to imagine what it would look like to walk with other working Christians to learn to do the same thing. In 2003, we launched a ministry called At Work On Purpose. Uh, this was about the time that Rick Warren had then published, a uh, newly published book, The Purpose Driven Life. And I remember reading it at the time, and I loved the book. 
I love the concept, but I, I was struck then and I'm struck now. Where is the purpose-driven work life in most of our purpose-driven lives? So At Work on Purpose was founded with this spirit in mind. And this is a, a photo up on the screen of one of our earliest gatherings. Uh, we started out as a small group, just about a dozen working Christians that I gathered together where we could regularly talk about what it looks like to live out faith at work, to encourage each other, to equip each other, uh, to basically walk together spiritually at work. But it grew quickly to dozens and then hundreds and then thousands of working Christians all across greater Cincinnati. Today, over 9,000 of us that cut across church homes, denominations, zip codes, and ministries but it started just like this with small group meetings and then every few months we'd have a, a weeknight gathering like this one. Or we'd have theater in the round, you know, and we would have all the people gathered around where we would just talk about faith at work. About that time, we started to have people who were wired entrepreneurially like I am who started to step forward and say, well, what can we do about faith at work when it comes to enterprises like business startups, social enterprise, or even up and running small businesses that could be more faith active in the way that they work. What about faith at work, not just at the individual level, but the organizational level? And so at this time, this is a, a photo of the unbearded me, uh, along with a set of my colleagues back in that day, where we were beginning to talk about this idea. And at this time, the At Work on Purpose ministry was fully funded by profits from the consulting firm that I run. Because I felt convicted as we launched it that if we're from the marketplace, then surely an economic engine should be the primary way that we fund the operation of the ministry instead of just going after donations. And it was at this table in the basement of my home that one day I, I was joking with everybody, I said, you know, I want to keep doing as much of this as possible. As that work on purpose grows, I want to create economic engines like Skillsource, like this consulting firm, so that the profit dollars from those enterprises can fund the ministry work. I said the business will fund the ministry and we'll call it Businessry. B-I-Z-N-I-S-T-R-Y. And we all laughed. But that day, an idea was born. And it caught fire in kind of a viral way. And before we knew it, we started to have a community of Christian entrepreneurs who were intrigued by this idea. Now, about the same time, I had started attending a local church in the greater Cincinnati area with a young and entrepreneurial pastor named Jeff Greer, who in many ways has become my partner in crime for much of the businessry that we do today. Uh, he and I often joke that it's kind of combining a head for business with a heart for ministry, and the two of us do it as a tag team. Grace Chapel had recently purchased a World War II era tool and die manufacturing plant. It was a fixer-upper for sure, but it was affordable, so for the local church, the price was right. But here was the thing. The way that the facility was laid out, it had parking in the middle and a whole bunch of buildings around it, and it was on a major thoroughfare in the city of Mason in greater Cincinnati. And we're like, you know what? This is a location that would be great not just for a local church for worship services on the weekend, like a midweek, but what if we did something with this facility where we were ministering seven days a week because we were able to put enterprises, faith-based enterprises, business trees, on this local church campus. And about this same time, 
Pastor Jeff had launched an entity, an organization called Self-Sustaining Enterprises, or SSE for short, because uh, if you cut his wrist, he would bleed Matthew 25, widows and orphans. And it breaks his heart when he travels uh, locally or globally, and he sees temporary support for young kids growing up without parents, and then the latest tsunami or hurricane hits, funds get diverted, but that little child still needs support. What does sustainable support look like for the least of these? And so he felt convicted to start creating self-sustaining enterprises that could fill this gap. You know, uh, as his wife loves to say, where the giving leaves off, the spending takes off. So SSE had been launched at this time, as well as Grace Chapel. We have this new facility that is ripe for business trees, for enterprises, and we start with something very simple, <laughs> like a thrift store. So you see up on the screen, the new to you thrift store. This is our first experiment. This building, again, built around the World War II era, was the place where the Stolly family had invented the pop-top can for soda pop. Uh, but by the time we got there, it had been abandoned. And so we fixed it up, we turned it into a thrift store, and it became center, but it became very profitable. But as the years have passed, and we had more and more of these enterprises proliferating across the campus, and we had more and more people coming to us who were interested in this idea of Christ-centered enterprise, faith-based enterprise, business tree. We decided it was time to take that building that had been a thrift store and reconvert it into what today is called the Orca Center. This is a training center. It's an equipping center for faith-based entrepreneurship. Uh, Pastor Jeff named it the Orca Center. I went to him one day. I said, why are you calling it an Orca Center? It's like, orcas are killer whales. It doesn't sound very spiritual. <laughs> and he laughed. He said, well, he said, Chuck, here's the deal. He said, in the marketplace, we talk all the time about swimming with sharks. But he said, in the ocean, the one thing that the sharks are afraid of is the killer whales. And he said, but the amazing thing about orcas is that they live in family units called pods. They are very careful to care for their old and their young. They live together in community. And he said, that's what we need to do. Besides, Chuck, orca is an acrostic for four things that are so important in our success with business tree. And I looked at it, I said, really? He said, yeah, always for originality, coming up with creative ways to understand how to connect faith and business that most people would miss. Resilience, the capacity to get back on our feet when we get knocked down because this has been really hard work. Collaboration, what does it look like for us to build bridges of relationships so that together as working Christians we could do more than we could ever do separately? It's a pleasure for me to be here in part because I wonder to myself, what could collaboration look like between the things that we're doing up in Cincinnati and what you folks are doing right down here at Asbury. What could we do together? That's the spirit. And A is for adaptability. The marketplace is fundamentally a disruptive, ever-changing environment. The minute you think you've got everything settled, somebody upsets the apple cart. It happens over and over and over again. So adaptability in many ways is more important as a survival skill than efficiency the ability to turn on a dime when conditions change. So Jeff lays out these four things. I'm like, wow, that's pretty good. I'm glad I'm working with you. <laughs> I'm also working with a guy named Pete West. This is a picture of me with Pete. He's now the director of, of SSE. Uh, Pete is an engineer by training, and he worked for decades at Procter & Gamble. 
before he took early retirement to become the key leader for SSE. And he's the key guy that shepherds the development of the business trees that we have. Currently, we're caring for over two dozen of these business trees. And we're standing here in this photo in front of little sheets that describe these. These are very straightforward business enterprises that have faith immersed inside of them, but you don't have to be a rocket scientist to start them up. They're things like hair salons, a landscaping company, uh, a CrossFit gym. These are things that everyday people can start, everyday people can afford. Jeff and I, as the years have passed, got more and more requests to publish something that would describe our journey with Faith at Work in this space of entrepreneurial ventures. And so we published Business Tree a few years back. And in this book, one of the things that we talk about are some tenets that have held true for us over the years that make for success with a business tree model. Four ideas, simple, affordable, profitable, and replicable. And just to briefly touch on these, the simple part is because the vast majority of us who start businesses have enough complexity just trying to figure out how to make them work, how to make them profitable. The more complicated you make it, the harder it is to make it work. So keep it simple, stupid. The uh, next part, affordable, our heart here is that the people that learn about our journey, they could afford to participate. You know what it's like sometimes when you see a really cool project that somebody's doing and you leave and you think that is so neat for them. But I could never do that because we don't have the funding. We have done all this stuff on a shoestring in a renovated tool and die manufacturing plant where we had to pay as we went because we didn't have enough money that we could raise from a blue collar congregation. What does it look like for us to design these business streets so that other people could step into them too? The profitable part. This is the Achilles heel in what's called the social enterprise movement. The vast majority of social enterprises never become self-sustaining. And because they are not profitable on an ongoing basis, they either have to be forever subsidized or they stop operating. In a marketplace environment, that's not acceptable. And we have to call this out. Without a margin, there is no mission. And this fourth one is replicable because our heart is that the things that we're doing right now, others could do as well. That a hair salon uh, that really creates employment for a few ladies and it takes off or a few guys, that eventually others could do that as well. And we have the same spirit for the Grace Chapel Business Street Campus. You see, uh, and I'm speaking as an elder at this local church. We have a heart to replicate the idea of a Business Street Campus with local churches all over the city all over the country. And to go a step further, we're imagining a day when 100% of the operating costs of our local church could be fully funded by the profits from these business trees. Now, I don't say that as a pipe dream. We're currently at about 20% of our operating costs being covered by the business trees that are underway, but we're just getting started. Right now, we've created couple dozen of these, we've uh, produced about 70 jobs and we release about $100,000 a year in profit. That's net income after you cover expenses. But we're just getting started. And imagine a day where you had local church facilities all over a city that are typically in great locations, but are active only one or two days out of the week. 
that suddenly had a purpose all through the week. The stewardship of those facilities would be so much better. That's the idea here, replicable. There are also some components that are integral to what we mean by business tree. I remember at the time that we first started doing this, there were many people who started launching what they called business trees. But when I opened the hood and looked inside, what I discovered was that they really weren't living out what we had intended by business tree. It's easy to sort of have a surface level definition. It's like, hey, I sell a bottle of water and I give you back one penny when I've made like 30 cents of profit. Uh, and I say, hey, I've released some funding for some sort of charitable work, so now I'm a business tree. That is not the spirit of what a business tree is. Because a business tree is a self-sustaining enterprise dedicated to God, commissioned for a kingdom purpose, operating according to biblical principles, integrating ministry throughout its sphere of influence, and releasing a sustained flow of funds for further ministry advancement. Any one of those five can be hard to do. Just think about operating according to biblical principles. We work in a marketplace that glorifies debt and instant gratification. But scripture tells us that the borrower is a slave to the lender. Biblical principles are simple to state, but they are often hard to live out in a workaday world. And that's just one of these five areas. Imagine doing all five of them consistently and strategically inside an enterprise. That's the spirit of a business tree. These five areas uh, didn't emerge by accident. They actually emerged out of a research project. When I was at Harvard, I spent a lot of time doing research projects because I just had to in order to graduate. And so it occurred to me that it would be really fun to do a research project with everyday working Christians to find out what we struggle with in our everyday work and what spiritual solutions might be attached to those. And I talked to hundreds of working Christians from all manner of work life. Some were uh, soon to retire, some were new to the workforce, uh, private sector, public sector, social sector, different areas of the country. But as I spoke with them over and over again, there were five overarching spiritual struggles that we face individually. And of course, it's from these five individual struggles that we find the organizational corollary with business tree. The first struggle is sacred versus secular. Will we view work as one more aspect of an integrated life of faith or a separate space where God is not present? The solution there is to accept the premise that work is truly a form of worship. So for a business tree, it's an organization that's dedicated to God. The second struggle, calling versus career. Will we pursue the vocation for which God created us or settle for the career that the world tells us is better? Most people don't know this, but the root word for vocation is vocare, which means a call of God for work. But if you look in the dictionary or thesaurus today, the synonyms would basically be job or career. People don't understand the difference. We have many jobs over a career lifetime, but we're all called 
to serve others to God's glory wherever we're working. The solution here is to identify God's purpose for our work in the moment and over time. For a business tree, it means to be commissioned for a kingdom purpose, like forever releasing a sustained flow of funds to support orphans or to reinvigorate an entire country that's been devastated. And the managers may come and go, but the funding never stops because it's committed. It's commissioned. The third struggle is righteousness versus compromise. Will we uphold God's standards of conduct at work or succumb to the standards of the work world? I don't have to go very far down any of the media that's out there to tell you how fallen a work world we live in. I'm thinking about Harvey Weinstein right now because that's like all over the news and that's just one example, but it's constant. So the everyday working Christians going into a corrupt marketplace environment and yet somehow we need to figure out how to glorify God through all of that. And the solution is to apply biblical principles where we are working. What does that look like for a business tree? It means to operate with biblical principles. Things like let your yes be a yes. That the borrower is a slave to the lender. The most simple but profound ideas that help a business or a business tree to become more competitive. This fourth struggle here is improvement versus stagnation. Will we view work as one of the most important arenas for spiritual formation or just a place to get a paycheck? Most of us really do spend most of our waking hours at work. It is one of the most incredible places to lead people to the Lord and to grow in Christ if we can see the time we spend at work through spiritual eyes. The solution here is to develop people professionally and personally in and through our everyday work. And for a business tree, what this looks like is that we are integrating ministry throughout our sphere of influence with customers, employees, contractors, suppliers, investors, regulators, competitors, and so forth. And last but not least, the struggle of stewardship versus ownership. Will we view the resources of the work world as belonging to God for his purposes or belonging to us for ours? You know, the marketplace tells us that we own things, but scripture tells us that a cattle on a thousand hills and everything under the sun belongs to God. What this looks like in the marketplace is to extend prosperity. This is the solution to extend prosperity from a working world to a hurting world. And what that looks for a business tree is to release a sustained flow of funds for further ministry advancement. So those five areas were not picked at random. They were picked through research and they're supported biblically. And together we call these within At Work on Purpose, these choices, the choices profile. It's the idea that every one of us builds a working witness one choice at a time. As I close out this morning, I just want to encourage all of you here with some scripture that we often hear, but we don't always contextualize for work. First of all, that we have a purpose at work. Every one of us, a shared purpose at work. It's called the Great Commission, right? Co-mission, to go and make disciples. We will never accomplish that until work is strategically integrated into that effort. We know 
that God has created good works in advance for us to do, right? That's in Ephesians. And even before that, that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which have been created in advance for us to do. We were not born on purpose, and we don't launch business trees without purpose. We have purpose that God gave to us, and our job is to live it out. Closing out here. We do our work for the Lord. Colossians 3, 23, 24, right? Do your work as unto the Lord, not unto men, knowing you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. We have many different employers over the course of a work lifetime, whether we're doing a business tree or whether we're just, you know, walking into work in an everyday job. But God is our ultimate boss, and eternity is our ultimate goal. And last but not least, one of my favorite pieces of scripture is Romans 8, 28. God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. There are so many times, perhaps for some of you, that you go to work or you start an enterprise and you struggle to get it off the ground and it can feel so lonely. But we know that God works alongside us because we're working to advance his kingdom for his glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this opportunity to take this thing we call an enterprise and imagine it through your eyes. Imagine it for the kingdom. Imagine it bringing your light to the darkness in the marketplace. That it wouldn't just um, be an enterprise that makes a dollar, Lord, but that it makes a difference. And I pray for the people in this chapel right now that every one of us would walk out of here one step closer to understanding what this might mean for us, what you might have for us when faith meets work, when a head for business meets a heart for ministry. In Jesus' name, amen.